Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jacob Barrett, and today I have the pleasure to be talking with Naomi Goldenberg about her recent edited volume, The End of Religion, Feminist Reappraisals of the State, that came out in uh, 2021 with Rutledge. Welcome to the podcast, Naomi. Thank you. Um, So I am very excited to be here talking with you today. This volume, um, well, your work has been really inspirational and foundational for my work. Um, and this volume has been something that I've carried around in my backpack probably more than any other book as I've um, written term papers and taught to um, <laughs> gone to different classes. So I'm excited to chat with you about it. Um, music to my ears, Jacob, music to my ears. <laughs> why don't we start with um, how did this volume come about? Um, you are one of the co-editors, the other co-editor, Kathleen McPhillips, um, was unable to join us, but how did this volume happen? Okay. Well, Kath McPhillips and I have been uh, talking together for a very long time. Uh, she's based in um, Newcastle in Australia. And uh, we, we first met when uh, I was uh, deconstructing Jungian theory, actually. And she was into Jungian theory, and we met. Uh, we actually met at Harvard, where I was giving a lecture, and she was a visiting scholar. Uh, and we kept in touch, and we saw each other. And then I, uh, quite a while ago, I started to get interested in uh, the um, critical religion approach to the category of religion. And I began to work on the positioning of religion within governments, and coming with the this as a term, more or less like a technology. And uh, I started to develop the theory we're talking about today, vestigial state theory. Now, I was meeting Kath for various situations for about three years, and she told me that all of a sudden the penny dropped and she understood vestigial state theory, and she wanted to, uh, to work on it some more, and she wanted to have a conference which uh, she uh, inspired me to put in Ottawa. So we had a a conference here and then she wanted to work on a volume. I like to work collaboratively with people, particularly on things that require administration and Kath was really wonderful in that. So we did have our conference in Ottawa and then uh, Kath and I put the collection of papers together, most based on the conference, but some uh, were solicited from outside people who who weren't at the conference, although most were. And that's how we got our volume. Great. Well, and what I think is so neat about this volume is um, all of the essays, um, it seems like each essay kind of takes vestigial state theory as the launching point to then jump into different conversations or, you know, different people picked up different um, aspects of the theory or whatever. Um, But why don't we start by kind of laying out on the table, what is vestigial state theory? What is, <laughs> yeah. um, okay. When you say you are theorizing religion as a vestigial state, what do you mean by that? 
Ah, okay. Well, uh, hmm, I have to start out by saying that the term uh, is uh, not perfect. Uh, I'm looking at how the category of religion is used currently, and I think always has been used, as a technology of governance that has gained traction because it's very useful. It's very useful to what I call dominant states, and it's very useful to marginalized states, which I'm seeing as religions or are often called religions. So because it's so useful, it has uh, taken on uh, a lot of um, traction. It's developed in very interesting ways and uh, it uh, it's flourishing. However, because the category of religion or the word or term religion is so mystified, I think that academics and the general public don't see through it that it uh it isn't seen as a uh a part of governance uh and uh that's what uh i'm uh, i'm hoping as this theory becomes interesting if it does become interesting to more and more people that uh that this will become more part of the scholarly narrative but also of the public policy narrative that's i think very important uh, so, okay, with that as an introduction, let me say what is wrong with both parts of the <laughs> of the term. First of all, vestigial. That I was vestigial tends to mean something, um, a structure or a practice that is no longer used but still remains some somewhere. And uh, I was thinking of the vestigial leg bones of a whale, for example, that when you see a whale skeleton, they'll say, well, the, this, these are leg bones that used to be used. So the whales don't walk around anymore. They don't. So vestigial tends to convey no longer used. But that's not at all what I mean by, uh, by the category of religion. It would be more accurate to say that religion is a once and future structure or that it names a once and future thing but to me that sounds almost comic like a once and future king a uh, once and future prince something like that so i'm sticking with vestigial people have suggested state in waiting state in hibernation not quite right so i'm sticking with vestigial for a while also the word state distracts people uh people will say Oh, state. Well, you're you're saying that uh, religion is anachronistic. It's a historical. It's applied all over the place. But it's um, state is also a modern category. And don't you realize that? And I'll say yes, I realize that. <laughs> I'm using state in a very general sense, more like uh, the sense that it's used in medieval philosophy, which is status publicus, which is just the authority, recognized authority over a certain jurisdiction, status, uh, status publicus. And I can't find a better word for that. So um, I'll keep the word state, but knowing that both those um, those terms are, are somewhat inaccurate, I'm hoping that other terms will come out. 
And I'm hoping that people will be applying the theory, critiquing the theory, changing the theory as as we go forward with it, because it has proven to be very useful. And uh, I'm I'm just delighted with that. I love to see what people do with it and even what they critique about it. So, okay, Um, that's a start. Okay, Uh, I'll just start um, that. Okay. So what I'm saying with vestigial state theory, what I'm hypothesizing, what I'm proposing is that when one group displaces another group, uh, they if they don't eliminate them entirely, they don't kill off everybody. If they allow that group to maintain some kind of cohesion within their new structure, if they've taken over a territory or jurisdiction, it is useful to call that marginalized or that displaced group a religion. That it's a way that a dominant sovereignty or a dominant group can allow another group to exist within its territory, give that group certain kinds of power, but not allow it to have access to violence. Now, I got that idea from Max Weber, who says, uh, I think just really wisely, that the state always keeps violence or the mechanisms of violence to itself. And I think he should have added that it keeps certain kinds of violence to itself, certain kinds of authority over violence to itself, police violence and martial violence. That is is something that a state retains always. It franchises out other kinds of of, uh, services, other kinds of of, um, behaviors, other kinds of structures, but never police or, or martial violence. And I think you can see that because something that is classified as a religion within a, uh, a dominant state tends to lose its status as a religion if it is seen as being violent in terms of police or an army. For example, Islam. If Islam, if if uh, people who are following Islam do anything that's seen as martial, martial violence in the terms of the dominant state, other terms get invented for it. People say, well, that's not a religion. That's not the religion of Islam. It's Islamist or it's uh, something else. They'll invent uh, some other kind of term uh, to marginalize and to, to not have that category religion apply to that. So I think you can see that Max Weber was right, that the state wants to keep that capacity to control violence to itself. Domestic violence is something else, because that is sometimes franchised out to these things called religions, which I'm calling vestigial states. So that's one component. The other component is that the marginalized sovereignty always retains a certain ambition. And that ambition is to be a better state. Maybe that state is seen as in the past, but it will also be seen as going to be in the future. Sometimes it's seen as something in heaven or after death. And that's very useful because then the aspiration to a different kind of state is not seen as threatening. 
to the dominant state. I don't think that's a conscious tactic, but it's often there. Or sometimes the the state that the vestigial state aspires to is seen as being very restricted, maybe just restricted to the family, or perhaps only restricted to the rules and regulations of uh, an in internally to a person. So um, there's the displacement, there's the marginalization, and then one other factor, and then I'll let you say, there's a, there's a lot that's connected here, is that um, the, uh, the vestigial state can support the dominant state. It can support the dominant state with all kinds of imagery, with all kinds of... Uh, blessings, blessing the state, or prayers that say that the state is really the uh, the first loyalty or is a loyalty. Uh, it can support the state, but it can also critique the state. And it can be a, a very potent forum for critique of a dominant order. So I'll one well, one more thing and then I'll I'll open it up. It always tends to support masculine hegemony because it's always looking backwards to what was to the once upon a time time when that kind of power was always imaged as masculine. I know that there are goddess movements, and I can honestly say some of my best friends are witches and goddess people, but that is not recognized as what was dominant and potent in the past. What's seen as dominant and potent in the past is male authority, male sovereignty, and therefore the presence of these things called religions within contemporary governments is always authorizing a male magical presence behind the scene and supporting male hegemony within um, what we call secular governance. I try not to use the word secular. So there we go. That's uh, an outline of vestigial state theory. Yeah, well, thank you. That's great. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I, I might have left some, I'm developing it in different ways in different places. So. <laughs> I might but, have left something out. But I think that's what's so, um, what I have found so useful about vestigial state theory is the way that it really is a reframing of how we're understanding um, what religion is, what how religion functions as a category of the dominant state. Um, that it's not just, and I think, I think because of that, it is so complex and, you know, it's, power relations are never just top down they're never just a one to one there's no, always no 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 there's always pushback and there's always um such a complex network of um relations taking place and so i think all of the caveats and all of the um explanation that you gave in your definition and your explanation of religion as a vestigial state are um necessary by by in talking about you know, how do we understand this complex power relation um, as it all works together? I also find the idea of religion as a vestigial state um, in your words as a once and, once and future state um, really key because it's, and it's not like a, it almost, you know, hyphened where it's like once and future, but like that's a compound word because it's not that it was once and will be again, but that it's like once and future together, that that's the, that's what makes it work. That's what makes it, um, the aspiration of the past, like you said, with the goal of the future, uh, 
that that's the driving force behind it. You know, I, in my own work, I've been thinking a lot about um, the Christian right in America. Um, and I think that's, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of scholarship that I've read talks about kind of the nostalgia for the past or the um, hearkening back to the nation's Christian origins. And um, while also saying, you know, we need to save the country, we need to establish a Christian nation again, we need to, and it's that move um, of looking to the past to claim a future that I think is so important in vestigial state theory. I I absolutely agree with you. You can see it with the working with a MAGA phrase, make America great again, looking back. It's it's always based in nostalgia, usually nostalgia for what never was. It's an idealization. Um, it it's, can be uh, something seen as fact, something that gets attributed to some group at some point that had supposedly a better form of government, uh, but it's always in the narrative, always in the narrative as something uh, in the past. Um, so I'm, I'm very glad that you uh, can, that you find it useful that, and that it, um, I, I'm also glad that you see the permutations of power because sometimes vestigial states can become dominant states. And they can certainly become the software of the dominant state. I think that starts, well, not, I don't, maybe it started before that, but Constantine, when Constantine converted to Christianity, Christianity became the software of the state. You can see it in Israel too, that Israel uh, is more and more embracing Judaism as a religion, as the mechanism, the software of the state. So, um, uh, that I really like to hear that. I like to hear how it is useful for for students and and for my colleagues. I also want to say, um, just as a caveat, I think we've made it clear so far, but um, it's this is a clarification that I've had to make, and I'm sure you've had to make when talking about um, religions of a stigial state. That state, you don't mean a a not in vestigial status not like as it went oh. it went vestigial and it will come you know religion became vestigial and now will become something different but you're talking about state as um how did you how did you describe it like uh, I, status publicus as as uh and as the, a, the dominant or recognized authority in a given territory not a particular form of the state not a particular form of government. It could be uh, a monarchy. It could be a democracy. It could be a constitutional monarchy, such as, uh, well, Britain hasn't got a constitution, but uh, it's uh, a, a democracy. It could be a federation. There are many forms that the status publicus can take. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. Um, turning to the, the volume, um, <laughs> each of the chapters works as um, an extension or an application of vestigial state theory. Um, are there chapters that, as you were editing the volume and seeing them come in and, and, and that you see the volume now, are there chapters that jump out, as, out at you as particularly um, exciting or um, interesting 
I find them all, <laughs> all very, <laughs> That's very a good answer from an editor. <laughs> yes, right. Yes. <laughs> I actually, one of my favorite parts of the book, I have to say this, is the introduction, <laughs> is the first few pages of the introduction. I was reading uh, Coetzee, the South African writer, at the time that I was writing the introduction, and he had uh, a a very interesting form. Uh, he was using um, one page, uh, a page would be divided into uh, a, uh, a an essay type expository format. And then below he would use uh, a, a novelistic literary format. And he began the first page thinking about what the state was. And underneath it, he has a woman walking into a, a laundry room where he is and disrupting his meditation. I thought that's exactly what we want to do with this book. We want to show that the presence of women within the state, when women start to be active agents within the state, certain premises are disturbed. And uh, I, I like beginning it that way. There, um, There's a, a wonderful essay by uh, Geraldine Finn about the Pope's funeral that I keep in mind as a the the last pope who had a huge funeral uh about how you could see the dominant states represented by men at this event and what the picture of that event showed there's a very uh compelling essay by Yvonne Sherwood about how the image of sovereignty changes as the headship of males uh, and the cutting off of heads and then moves to more of a fraternity uh, in, in one way or another. There's essays by Stacey Swain and Barbara Greenberg on indigenous uh, communities in Canada and by Larissa Garrett about how the uh, you can see in Mexico the various uh, times when drug cartels fight with the state, fight with the police, and you can see the different male power relations within the um, the country of Mexico as uh, a bunch of uh, male sovereignties that are competing. Um, some of those essays, I think, are uh, stand out, at least right now. But uh, when I when I think about the volume, uh, specifically other essays come up, like Elizabeth Pritchard, who's brilliant about the theory of the state. She has a wonderful book out on John Locke and uh, her idea of uh, the uh, connection of the theory to statecraft is, is really wonderful. She can be quite critical of, of uh, my formulation. I think mainly she has disagreed with the uh, emphasis I put on violence and the control of violence as being central to uh, a dominant state. So some of, some of those essays stand out to me. Yeah, well, and I think you highlighted it there, how um, I think what's really impressive about the volume is that it's um, it covers that it, it's very international. Um, it's placed in different national contexts, it's placed in different um, religious traditions, different uh, th there's a lot of variety happening within the pages of the volume that make it, I think, extremely compelling and that build on the argument to show um, you know, my my own work, I'm physically located in the United States. I 
yeah. spend most of my time researching on the United States um, and can kind of get um, the, the the tunnel vision of you know U.S. centric scholarship. Um, oh, that's really important. Yeah, and to see how um, the theory works just as well and finds new footing and becomes expanded by um, other contexts and um, locations around the world, I think is really important. Well, that some of that is because the category of religion itself has been carried by colonialism and uh, it's been exported just the way the writing of constitutions has been exported all around uh, the world. So that this rather European, British, North American form of government, which has utilized this category, has been applied elsewhere and uh, has taken hold elsewhere. Um, for instance, in Africa, David Chichester has really interesting work on that of how African missionaries come to Africa. They look around and they say, hey, there's no religion here or or uh, even before the missionaries, no religion. This is a primitive place. Then they begin to notice things and say, ah, they have something and they name it religion. And then they say, but ours is better. And they wind up then converting uh, and, of course, pressuring uh, the indigenous populations to see themselves as having this thing called religion, which isn't as good as the other one. Also in Japan, Mitsutoshi Horai has really two very interesting books about how the category of religion has been imposed on Japan and then utilized in uh, in the way uh, of uh, a categorization that makes sense in the West and then has been adopted in in Japan. So there's there's so many ways in which this uh, particular arrangement of a government uh, has uh, been exported to yeah. throughout the globe, actually. Um, and there, along with, if I could say, the okay. claim that religion is always and everywhere time immemorial and existent fact that we can find everywhere. Uh, people are now finding it. I think even there's a, a theory that chimpanzees have it. So it, it gets theorized as being more and more mysterious and more and more eternal and more and more ahistorical when in fact it's not. When, so the, I wanted to ask about the title of the volume. Um, yes. So the end of religion, uh, feminist reappraisals of the state. How did that? What? Why did you title the volume that? And what do you think the? Um, how that reflects kind of the goal of the volume? Uh, well, we were we're thinking of the end of religion in the sense of the end of thinking of religion as a separate category, as something that's independent of governance. So of course it's a little bit flashy, the end of religion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. And then what we want to emphasize, the part of the theory that we want to really bring out is the position of women and how we think that this theory explains or at least makes steps toward explaining why the inferior position of women in um, government 
has has been so intractable why it why it stays why it keeps coming back that women are pushed down again and again and uh i think there's some very interesting parallels we can make to for instance sarah pateman's theory of what she called a sexual contract she wrote that in 1988 that there's a contract that precedes all other forms of contract involving women, employment contract, marriage contract, surrogacy contract, prostitution contract. But she never locates where that earlier contract is. And I think at least part of the answer is that it's located within the idea of the state within a state, within religions, which are always injecting this ghost of male authority uh, into contemporary states. So we wanted to get at that and to signal also that we think that this has relevance in political science, mm -hmm. in um, theories of international law. Uh, we we wanted to kind of move it to, yes, it pertains to religious studies, but to also uh, signal that it has a lot to do with politics. Yeah, and that because I th and I think that does a really important work um, in saying that religion that we're at the you know the end of religion as a special unique as a special as a unique thing right that it does away with um, I think the idea that other maybe on both sides that other fields don't want to pick up religion and right. think about it. Or that it can't go near it because oh that's religion we'll leave that aside yeah right or or the reverse that like religious studies stays insular thinking about just religion you know just religion that's right, that's right. that if we blur those lines and say well let's reconceptualize this as governance as you know then then other conversation partners become available you know it's it becomes a relevant conversation to political science political theory to feminist theory to queer theory to religious studies it becomes this like really rich space to have interdisciplinary conversations around you're absolutely right right yeah uh people have been worried that it could uh, eradicate the study of religion now that would be very unfortunate i i see it as opening up the uh the discipline as you say to making religion a topic that uh political science people can approach by seeing this as a technology of governance as part of governance as a way to theorize uh statecraft contemporary statecraft ancient statecraft um in ancient statecraft i don't know if this is you want to get into this right oh. now but uh i uh although we don't have the, the category religion gets imposed on the deep past, but it's it's not. I started to see it in, uh, I, I began my career as a classicist. So I uh, one of my favorite authors was Aeschylus. And I also liked Hesiod. Not many people like Hesiod, but I did. Uh, and both of those authors have uh, a little bit, Aeschylus particularly, about a succession of sovereignties in uh, the Oresteia, uh, Aeschylus talks about the Furies as a displaced, they get displaced at the end of the third play. 
And he says to the Furies, we're going to give you a great place. You're going to be below the earth now and you're going to get all kinds of honors, but you'll still be there. And the Furies accept that. And I thought, aha, here's the beginning of vestigial uh, vestigial state. He's moving uh, sovereignty, giving it a kind of status, but reducing its power to commit violence, actually. Hesiod does the same thing in some lines about the displacement of Uranus the uh, very violent god becomes a counselor to other sovereignties that come next. And although they're not using the term religion, I can see that movement of sovereignties there. So that, that's another thing that, uh, that uh, I think supports uh, this view of how the category evolves. Yeah. And in a way, I think it's, you know, as you mentioned those kind of debates about projecting the category of religion backwards. And I think like on you either see people saying, well, no, it is a term that came about in this period in Europe and it's a Latin word and it develops here. So there is no religion in the ancient world or people saying, no, of course there is. And look, it's there. And I think what you just said is an interesting, um, I don't know, kind of bridge between those conversations to say, well, if re- if religion becomes about governing and managing different groups of people, well, of course there was religion. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> right, like anytime there was diverse groups of people interacting in power that needed, you know, to be deployed, well, then sure there was religion. But, and also, yes, the term religion comes about in a specific moment, and that's not necessarily fair to deploy back in the same way. So that's an interesting... Yeah, yeah. And, and it evolves. Uh, the term takes traction in different times and places in different ways. And what I would hope is that people who find it interesting could see how it evolves in different contexts and how it gains strength. Uh, I think that's happening in the U.S. now. It it used to be a surprise to think that people would defend bigoted speech, for example, as being okay if it were under the heading of religion. But now that's not a surprise. People have uh, accepted that, oh, that's okay. Women are treated this way within the religion because that's a different kind of thing. Now it's more and more accepted that there are inequities Um same-sex marriage doesn't have to be accepted here because of religious reasons, various uh, ideas like that. So we can see that concepts of freedom of speech get to be applied differently in this different, in a sense, legal framework, which is getting recognized in a lot of places that, oh, well, that's their rules, that's their laws. So uh, I do see it as uh, applicable in uh, in a lot of different contexts. And, uh, and I really like that you've appreciated the range of, of um, topics that uh, we included in the book. My last question has kind of two parts. Um, so I'm inter- I want to hear from you about where what you think the future of vestigial state theory oh. is. Where do you see where do you see your own work taking you and kind of what's your hope for um in a perfect world what happens with it? Um <laughs> perfect world. But, well 
maybe yeah. those, I guess the two parts would be I'm interested in in your own work and in scholarship. But at the beginning of the our conversation, you mentioned also um, a hope that vestigial state theory and this line of thinking has some policy implications as well. And I'd love to hear kind of your thoughts on where you think that goes. Policy implications. Uh, I think that we're always better off when we see institutions more clearly. And I think that if there were a general appreciation for how the category gets used as a um, subset of government, as a, a separate government, then perhaps it could even be used better mm-hmm. than, it, than it is now. One of the chapters I want to work on is the way the black church has used the category of religion so successfully to fight for civil rights uh, in so many ways. The new biography of Martin Luther King uh, points to some statements that King made about why do civil rights leaders come out of Uh, churches, black churches so much. And one of his answers was, well, they're not dependent on white people for their salaries, which is very important that the institutionalization of religions as having being under a separate tax regime has enabled a kind of power. And that's been used very successfully. So that's one one way. Um, I think the only thing I agree with the Catholic Church about is the current opposition to capital punishment. And I think that that the Catholic uh, at present, I mean, they didn't mind killing witches a long time ago, but apparently now, uh, that that the position of Catholicism as a vestigial state can give it some power that way. I also think maybe a more negative way that uh, once uh, one understands the the power that that male hegemony holds uh, both in a secular way um, although I'm using that word which I don't want to use in the dominant state as as in the marginalized vestigial state I think that that hold of masculinity, the magic quality of of masculinity, uh, masculine leadership, the idealization of it could be lessened a bit. And I think that would be all to the good that places where there's too much deference to a religious authority, if that is seen as a particular kind of regulatory authority, I think the hold that uh, these um these magical terms or these mystified terms, religion is a very mystified term, uh, holds can be lessened. And I think that that's all to the good. Yeah. And what, so I guess the then the, the other piece of that question, where do you see the steel state theory going um, in the future in scholarly conversations in your own work? And what where, what are your hopes for, for what comes next? Um, I always like to hear what uh, my graduate students have been doing with it. And recently I was at the um, 
the social science uh, and religion conference in Salt Lake City, where uh, a former grad student in uh, in our department was applying vestigial state theory to Mormonism, and particularly the way Mormonism has had uh, a lot of influence on domestic policy, and how the uh, the financial power that uh, Mormons have had and continue to have, which is ceded to them by the state because of a privileged taxation, and also the way Mormons see or Mormon authorities see themselves as having jurisdiction over domestic policy, not just Mormon domesticity, but everyone's domesticity, how that that's very cogent uh, and uh, how that has has operated sometimes successfully for Mormons, sometimes not. Um, it looks like they didn't win out in same sex uh, marriages, but they certainly had a lot of influence on the Equal Rights Amendment, not having that pass in the U.S. So I, uh, that that's an application there. Uh, another former grad student of mine was applying it to the way uh, indigenous groups in Canada got to be classified as religions. And he looked at correspondence between um, uh, military governing bodies in Saskatchewan and in Ottawa and how the category of religion allowed them both to decide what could be allowed to be done and not done. So those are examples of uh, of how things have been used by uh, by uh, other people. Kath McPhillips is applying it uh, also now to um, the different regimes within Catholicism of handling sexual harassment or the um, sexual assault on minors and why certain authority gets to be placed here, there, and everywhere. Uh, so that's, an, those are, I, I like to see these, these uses of it. Uh, I also like to argue with people about it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that seems to be happening a lot. Um so who knows? I mean, uh, it, you never know whether uh, some theory is going to take hold or if it takes hold now or 10 years from now or whatever. But I'm uh, I'm um, I'm obsessed with it. I continue to be obsessed. With <laughs> it. <laughs> and I like to see uh, the permutations and the way that people use it. Yeah. Well, for instance, you're finding it useful uh, in your your work on Christianity. Yeah, and um, it's been useful to think about um, in my work on religious freedom in the U.S. and um, the ways that the legal system directly interacts with religion and how we understand those as mechanisms of of governance and maybe keeping um, religion vestigial um, or when religion gets to when those mechanisms allow for those once and future states to see themselves as future again um so yeah well thank you so much for this conversation i think um clearly i find vestigial state theory compelling and i think it's such a rich um place to to start to think from so thank you for your work and for the volume in our conversation this has been lovely thank you jacob i really appreciate your interest it's so heartening thank you very much <laughs>